All right, well, good morning, everyone. Hope you've had a good week so far. And well, we're in lesson 24 of Foundations this morning Original Sin, which I must say is probably one of the most unpopular topics of most unpopular doctrines in all the world. Uh, I would even say, even among Christians, is this one. And if you want to just an experiment with that, go pay to make a t-shirt that has in bold print, you're a sinner, just across it, and just wear it out, and just see the response. Um, There's something about that part of the gospel message, that part of the scripture's teaching, that is most offensive, and especially if you put under it, you were born that way. Um, You are a sinner, you were born that way that just flies very much in the face of every culture's understanding of the human condition, which really is, because what are words that, when we talk about little children, what are things that we say? Innocent, Innocent, right? And, And in one sense, humanly speaking, in a judicial sense, that's true. They haven't committed crimes, they're not guilty and punishable. There's a sense in which there's a childlike innocence. But what we should mean by that is sinless is guiltless before God, because what this doctrine of Scripture and what Scripture will teach us is very much, there's something we've inherited as soon as we are conceived and come into this world that, that none of us get to avoid. And the only way to avoid it is to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Like, that's the only way to not inherit the guilt and pollution of sin uh, from Adam. So that's some of what we're going to talk about today. Um, let me pray for us as we, as we do that. Well, Father, we do thank you that though your word cuts deeply and can hurt, um, it heals deeply. There is a sweetness to knowing the truth, to hearing from your voice uh, the reason we are the way we are, just the clear truth and love. And in receiving that and in believing to be led by Christ to the only place where our sin is dealt with, and that is at his cross and his resurrection, the only way we can be reconciled to you. And so we are humbled uh, to study these truths as sinners, but even more humbled to know that there is hope, there's forgiveness of our sins in Christ. And so teach us this morning, we pray, help us to believe, help us to apply what we hear. In Christ's name, amen. We'll turn, if you would, to Romans 5. It's where we'll spend a good bit of time. One of the primary passages of Scripture that we have that teaches this truth of original sin. Original sin teaches that when Adam sinned in the garden, the entire human race fell with him from a state of sinless perfection into a state of sinful depravity. That's sort of the main idea. That as a result, every human being, to use the words of Psalm 51, is conceived in iniquity. Those are David's words. That when when repenting of his sin, his adultery before God, and the murder that he conspired with Uriah or upon Uriah, he's going to confess, I was conceived in iniquity. And that's a great sort of picture, if you will, of this idea of inherited sin, original sin. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. And so little babies, though they're adorable, though they're precious, though they're a gift, they come into the world with a sinful nature. 
They can't express the depth or the fullness of their hostility to God, right? Little babies can't do that. They don't know how to put it into words, just how angry they are toward God, just how hostile they are to God. But it's because of a lack of capacity, not a lack of nature. Because as the capacity increases, the capacity of expression, the capacity of understanding, the capacity of intellectual thought, what becomes more and more clear is that every thought of every intention of the heart continually is against God. Which doesn't mean it's never on anything good. It just means on the things that are good, it's away from God. Can we do great acts of charity away from God, against God? Can we even pray to God from self-righteousness? Can we give to the poor from self-righteousness? Can we do acts of charity, but not dependent on the Holy Spirit, not from faith? And so what it doesn't mean is that humans can't do any good. Humans can't think things or do things that aren't helpful or constructive. Again, we'll clarify some of that as we go. This is Augustine in his Confessions. He says, Who can recall to me the sins I committed as a baby? For in your sight no man is free from sin, not even a child who has lived only one day on the earth. He went on to say, I would have strangled my mother while nursing at her breast if I had the strength to do so. That was his confession. Like, now looking back, as a sapers, he looks back and goes, yeah, if I had the strength, I would have strangled her. Um, that that's getting to sort of the depths of original sin. Of course, Augustine, he didn't make that doctrine up. He drew it from hundreds of passages of Scripture that all teach this truth that now bring clarity and understanding to why he was the way he was. And so for Augustine, this is one of the most refreshing doctrines of Scripture because it helped explain to him why he was the way he was before Christ intervened. He's like, why was I so wicked? Why was I so selfish? Why was I so angry? Why was I so lustful? Where did it begin? Where did it come from? This is Psalm 14, 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So again, you listen to the language. They've all turned aside. All together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. And so we have to ask, is God also speaking about babies? Is he also speaking about children? Is he looking down from heaven and going, okay, only those over the age of 12? Only those who are over 18? Or is he looking at the human race? Every person, everywhere on the whole earth, and that's his observation. So it brings us to the main idea that the original sin of Adam was transmitted and imputed, meaning counted to, the entire human race, which means we're conceived and born with a polluted nature. And it's that nature then that renders us hostile to God, unrighteous before God, and unable to reconcile ourselves to God. So that's the, the basic idea of this doctrine of original sin. And so when you hear all that, what, what are some of the questions that immediately come to your mind? What is this, when you hear like that kind of an idea, or reflect on Psalm 14 or Psalm 51 that we just read, what, what immediate questions come to your mind? 
What immediate things rub you the wrong way? Tim? Why is because Adam's sin has gotten me all of us had to fall into that? So there's one. Why, if it was just this one guy's transgression, why does everybody now have to pay that price? Why does everybody sort of become sinners that are born if, if it was just this one person? Yeah, Andrew? And so that's one way to think about sort of original sin. It's that it's, you don't have to teach kids selfishness. You don't have to teach any of us. And so that's one of the ways we know, okay, this is what's natural. You know, the, that what's the bent of the human. And the older we get, the more it becomes apparent to us, okay, I don't, nobody has to teach me to think about myself. Um, Another question would be, uh, when you just think about the transmitting Yeah, so it's the question of, okay, how is it transmitted? How is it tra- imputed? How does that actually work? Yeah, Karen. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great question too. Is there anything in us good? If if this idea of original sin doesn't mean every single morsel, every part, is just all wrong all the time, uh, could there be any good? So again, those are all questions that are that we're going to hit on, and it's one of the reasons why you know guys like R.C. Sproul, I think, rightly questions. He, he thinks the word total depravity is not particularly helpful. He thinks a better word might be radical depravity or radical corruption. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Using the word radical not to mean extreme, but the word radical to mean root. That it's at the root everything we think and feel and do is touched by and infected by sinfulness. So it doesn't mean a human being can't do something good or can't think something good or doesn't actually retain in some sense the, the image of God. And what there is a dignity then that is inerrant to the to being a human, but just what it more means that we'll talk about is every part of us is touched in some way, at the root, that it's not a mere external problem. That how often is Jesus going to have to teach? It's the heart, the heart, the heart, and that's some of why we can talk about this idea of okay, therefore all of us, the whole of us, is touched by it even though we can do good things. And even though we should, even unbelievers are responsible to do good things, even if there isn't capacity for it. Um, See, I think all those questions are going to be good questions that we're going to try to touch on and and answer this morning. John, I heard one example Yeah, because some of what we'll talk about is the idea that 
everyone could always be more wicked, <laughs> which just means there, there's still room for more wickedness, which means it's not entirely full. So the idea of, okay, even a, but a little bit of ink in that water spreads to the whole. There's still a lot of H2O. There's still a lot of water. You could probably still drink it, but yeah, yeah with every drop of ink, it doesn't just contain itself in a little bit like it's a drop of oil, but like ink, it spreads into all of it. So that's a great, a great image, a great picture of, of the idea. Well, Romans 5, 12 through 21, um, would somebody read those, those verses for us, that, the, those nine verses there? Romans 5, 12 through 21. And so this beautiful back and forth in the passage of, okay, here's, here's the original sin and guilt and pollution we inherited from the one man, Adam. But then here's the justification and the peace and the righteousness and the salvation we'll inherit from one man, Jesus Christ. And you just can't appreciate one without the other, which is some of why this doctrine is so important. That Look at just, again, look at all the, the statements in this passage that should remove all doubt, I think, about the existence of original sin. Look at verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man. Verse 15. Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Just time after time after time, one man, one trespass, all made sinners, all condemned, all guilty. 
And so over and over he's going to drive that point home, that sin entered the world and spread to the entire human race through the trespass of one man, that being Adam. And that's why we say it the way we do in the Baptist Confession of Faith. Somebody want to read that for us, how the, 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 the Baptist Confession summarizes it? Yes, it's one way that, that that confession is going to summarize this doctrine. And Andrew, yes? Is this the New Hampshire or London doctrine? London. So yeah, this is the London one. And, and I love it when they, you know, they had made opposite, and then in, in brackets they put averse and antagonistic, as if that cleared it up. Um, when I thought, I thought made opposite was probably more clear than antagonistic. Or, but I think they're trying to not just clarify what opposite means, but actually heighten the sense of, of opposition that made opposite means antagonistic, hostile, not on friendly terms with God. Even our uh, DRBC statement of faith has a statement on this. Somebody read that for us. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created with innocence, but voluntarily rebelled against God and brought sin into the world. As a result, all people are born sinners, inheriting the condemnation of our first parents, Adam and and you can see that's a reason why churches have statements of faith, so that we can even put before people who are either members of the congregation or wanting to be members, okay, this is what we believe the Bible teaches on this truth. And this is going to really affect the way you teach. This is going to affect the way you preach. This is going to affect the way you do discipleship. This is going to affect how you share the gospel. So that's why these kinds of clarifying statements uh, are helpful. And what's interesting is, is many churches are going to have these kinds of statements in those documents. But then it's another thing to go, okay, but do we hold to it? Do we teach it when the rubber really meets the road? Um, so how does it work? That was one of the questions, Thomas, you raised of how does this actually happen where original sin gets transmitted or imputed down? And there's two primary theories. I call them theories because they're, they're, they're identified as that. I think they're more just two different perspectives of the doctrine. Um, one is called the realistic theory that relies on this idea of what's called seminal identity. The idea that the entire human race was actually in the loins of Adam when he sinned. And since the whole human race was in his loins and descended from him seminally, they're all held guilty. They all receive his corruption. And so it holds this idea that Adam is our natural head. We'll talk about federal headship in a minute, but this holds this idea that he's our natural head, that we all physically descend from him, and therefore we inherit through his loins what he did. Yeah, a, a verse on that, Hebrews 7, 9 through 10, <clears throat> where, you know, the author Hebrews is going to make the point, you know, even Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 7. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so in other words, he's going to say, okay, so really in a way, Levi has paid tithes to this Melchizedek. That's going to be a figure, a picture of, of Christ even as the great high priest. 
And it's saying, okay, even Levi is submitted and underneath this Melchizedek because he paid tithes to him. Well, what do you mean? Levi wasn't even around when Melchizedek, well, because Abraham did. Because Abraham did, Levi was in his loins, and so Levi did. So that's a great picture, if you will, of, of natural headship, of seminal identity. That because I descend physically from this person that did it, they represent me naturally. But then the second um, and more, more probably one that we would most closely hold to as a church is, is what's called the covenant theory. And this relies on the idea of imputation or counting to someone uh, based on another kind of connection. That the sin of Adam was imputed to the whole of humanity because he's our federal head. And again, as, as American citizens, we understand what federal headship is. We have a Congress, we have a president that represents us. We vote, we put them there, and now if our Congress declares war, how many of us are at war? We're all at war. Why? Because they represent us federally. And because of that, their actions are actually imputed to us. Their actions are accounted as, as our actions. <clears throat> and so it views that Adam is the representative of the human race as federal head. That God entered into a covenant of works with Adam. Okay, here's what you are to do. Here's what you're not to do. And Adam was our representative in that covenant. That he is the one who's there to represent the rest of us in upholding that covenant with God. And so when he broke that covenant, he broke it on his own behalf, but also on the behalf of all his progeny. So everybody's going to come with because he represented us. And so this gets to Thomas's question of, okay, how does that work? How does it actually get counted to us? Well, because God really believes in representation. <laughs> he really believes in federal headship. Now, we're going to be thankful for this, right? In federal headship. Why, why should we be really thankful for federal headship? Yes. Is Christ going to be our natural head or our federal head? Yeah, because what if you don't descend from him physically? Who, who descends from Jesus physically? Nobody. That's right. Didn't have, a, didn't have a physical wife, didn't have physical children. And so there's no way that his righteousness can be counted as ours through natural headship. It's only through federal headship. It's because God's going to count him as our representative, all those whose faith is in him. But we'll get to that in a little bit. So what the Bible teaches about imputed righteousness, logically speaking, seems to support this idea of imputed sin. Listen to this in Romans 5. We just read it. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So again, it's that comfort of the gospel that we are counted as righteous before God through faith in Jesus because the Father will accept him as our representative head. That basically before the judgment seat of God, there will be those who are in Adam still and those who are in Christ. And who do you want representing you before God? Old Adam or Christ? And so that's what faith in Jesus really means and does. It's okay, I, wanna, I want him to represent me. And that's why there'll be times where um, you know, Jesus will tell the parable of, of the king who, or, or the, the, the one who left this vineyard and left this property to these stewards and then went away to receive a kingdom. 
and is going to give them minas, give them talents, give them things to do business while he's away. And, then, and there's a bunch of people that go after and say, hey, we don't want this guy to rule over us. And you remember the king comes back later and does business with the servants, but then says, okay, now bring the ones to me that said they didn't want me to rule them and slay them before me. If you will, that's a picture of who do you want to represent you? Who do you want as your head, as your king? And so there's going to be our our primary disposition as sinners is, okay, I don't want Christ to rule me. I don't want him as Lord, as Savior. I don't want him to be my head, my representative. And it's like, okay, but that means you're going to stand before God the Father at judgment time, and he's not your representative. You represent yourself. Old Adam will be your attorney. <clears throat> you will be the one advocating. Your righteousness will be what you stand in. And you can all see the terror of that, the danger of that. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, there's original sin, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, there is original sin, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So there's 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, that same doctrine. You know, in Adam all die, in Christ we live. And so those words imply that the means by which we become righteous before God is very similar to the means by which we became unrighteous before God. And that's through imputation, through federal headship. Um, and so as a whole, I think those kind of passages really strengthen the covenant theory, this, this covenant view that this is how we're made sinners, and this is how we're made righteous, is through federal headship. I don't think we can just throw out the realistic theory altogether because of passages like Hebrews 7 that we read, And so I like to see that as, okay, that's probably something. There's something there. Probably covenant theory covers the most of the ground for how we should understand original sin and imputed righteousness. But then I think when it just comes to, okay, something about being physical descendants of sinners still matters because that is still how sin is being passed on. And some of that, and I think some of what supports that is even the incarnation. Why was Jesus not born a sinner? Yeah, because there wasn't the joining of physical sperm, physical egg. He wasn't actually just a human baby merely. That he was conceived of the, of the Holy Spirit, therefore fully man, fully God. And there's something about that that means he was not born with original corruption. <clears throat> but then what do we actually get? So when we talk about imputed things and inherited things, what is it that we actually receive from Adam? And I think it's summed up in these two words, guilt and pollution, which is section two there in front of you. What is the nature of the original sin to which Paul referred in Romans 5? This is going to get, Karen, to some of your your question. Firstly, the idea of inherited guilt. When Paul said, look in verse 16 again of chapter 5, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's a judicial guilt judgment term. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation of all men. And so he's referring to how Adam's sin imputed guilt to all people. The sense of condemnation before God. This rendering of a guilty verdict before God. Since Adam was guilty, we all became guilty. 
and again, for a lot of us, this seems so terribly unfair. Um, I remember personally, you know, 1985, I still remember the day because I was in England at the time. Um, I don't know if you all ever remember the, the Heisel Stadium disaster in Brussels. Disaster because it was a riot. Not, it was called a disaster, but it was a riot where Liverpool was playing Juventus in a UEFA Cup. I can't remember if it's quarterfinals, semifinals, what it was. And Liverpool lost and the fans rioted. The Liverpool fans, they broke through barricades, they, they broke through police lines, they beat a bunch of the Juventus fans, and a wall collapsed because of some of the mob that was pushing in different parts. I think it was like 40 people died. Uh, 39 or 40 were killed, and around 400 were hospitalized, were injured. Um, and so the, the, the governing body of Europe banned all English soccer teams from playing in mainland Europe for, I think it was like for two or three years, including youth soccer teams. And so I played on a youth soccer team that we went to Belgium every year and played in tournaments. And so every year we took that trip, except 1985 and 1986, when even as 13-year-olds, we were not allowed to set foot in mainland Europe for the purpose of touching a soccer ball. That even, it was even if you would travel there, you could still travel to Europe, but it was made clear that if you're an English soccer player or an English fan, you're not to be in a football stadium, near a football stadium, you could not even pick, play pickup soccer in Europe. That that's how it was expressed to us. <clears throat> well, that's inherited guilt. That's what that is, that the Liverpool fans represented all of us. And in representing all of us and beating 39 or 40 people to death and sending 400 to a hospital, the governing bodies judged all are condemned, all are guilty. So none of you get to come over for this period of time. Um, and so that, I remember that stuck with me so strongly because I just thought this is so unfair. This is so wrong. This is so terrible. Why not just ban this team, these fans? Why all of us? And I didn't know that years later it would help me understand the doctrine of inherited guilt, <laughs> that, that even humans understand this. Even humans will judge this way, uh, especially in extreme situations. Well, how much more so God? Um, now, we may have, again, objections to this. This gets to y'all's question, Tim, of just, okay, that seems really unfair that we should be counted that way. And I think we, we can answer it in a few ways. One is the world in which you live is far more relationally connected than most of us realize from God's point of view especially I think in the American individualistic mindset, the sort of the Western worldview, or just kind of any, and so I think some of this is actually cultural, why we have trouble at times understanding the culture of the Bible, because we tend to think very individualistically. And there is certainly in scripture where God will say, okay, fathers will not be put to death for the deeds of their, or sons will not be put to death for the deeds of their fathers, nor fathers for the deeds of their sons. So in a judicial lawful sense in the nation, you weren't to kill the son because of the father's sin. So there is a way in which we see in the Bible individual responsibility, individual guilt before God. But also throughout scripture we see there are just times where it's so relationally connected that the idea that the sins of previous generations that get passed down, but not so much their sin God punishes us for it, but rather their sin we tend to inherit it. <laughs> we tend to receive it, embrace it, and then carry it out in a way that's, in, that's even inside us. And so there's much more relational connection, I think, than we realize. Um, 
Yeah, listen to Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9. He says, oh my, this is after um, he learns of all this intermarriage of the people. So a bunch of, they, they come back from exile, and they were exiled because of all the idolatry of the land. And a lot of that idolatry of the land is because they'd intermarried other peoples and their gods. And so now God graciously brings them back from exile, rebuilding the temple. And then Ezra comes back and learns that a bunch of these guys have started marrying foreign women again. And so he's going to tear his clothes, he's going to pull out his beard, he's going to sit and he's going to mourn and then listen to what he's going to pray. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to life, my face, lift my face to you. He's like, I'm ashamed and I'm going to blush to lift my face to you. Was that because Ezra inter- intermarried? Uh, or because Ezra's representing? You know, Ezra's interceding. He says, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Whose iniquities, does Ezra say? Our iniquities. Daniel's going to pray this way. Samuel's going to pray this way. You know, Isaiah is going to, in Isaiah 6, is going to be so aware that he's a a man of sinful lips surrounded by men with sinful lips. And they feel the weight of that before God. This is our sin, our transgression. So there's something instinctive in our flesh that wants to distance the sin of others, of our peoples, away from us. This is even the danger in the, the political climate that we live in that's sort of polarizing into sides. Because then one side can always do what to the other side? Vilify, point, and say the real problems, the real evil of our land is what? It's theirs. Where Really, how would the Bible have us say it? Whose evil is it? <laughs> it's ours. It's ours. No matter who we elect, no matter who we put in Congress, in president, no matter who we put as judges, they represent us. It's not them and us from God's point of view. It's just us. So that when we pray, when we think, when we relate, there's this awareness, okay, this is much more relationally connected. So I don't get to, in my own mind, create sides and then distance myself as if, okay, I'm no, I don't have this guilt, pollution, or danger because that, they're worse. Was there a danger in that in Israel even? In Jesus' day with the Pharisees? and Because who was the us and them in the synagogues? Yeah, there was, there was the Jew and the Gentile. That was one wall, right? There was this idea of, okay, we're, we're Jews. We're this. But also there would have been rich and poor. There would have been healthy sick. There would have been religious elite. And then the sinners who were tax collectors and prostitutes. And, and so you see that now when Jesus shows up, nobody's ready to really own their guilt, own their pollution, except those who don't have doubt in their minds that they're sinners. <laughs> except those who aren't fully aware of, no, no, I, I am unrighteous. I need forgiveness. And so that's why this, the, those are, to me, implications of this kind of doctrine that's so helpful, is it just puts all of us in the same bucket without question no matter how we think our sin stacks up to everybody else's, no matter how we might measure it, 
we just get to hear, no, no, from God's point of view, at the very root of all of us, we're conceived in iniquity and born into sin. We inherit something that we can't shake off. And therefore, we need rescue. We need a Savior. We need redemption. We don't need just for God to choose our side. Um, yeah, which brings to that second sort of answer to this idea it seems unfair. And this is a, the idea that we're not actually innocent. And so we have to learn to see ourselves apart from Christ as sort of these sinful rebels that we are. That yes, we inherited this guilt and pollution, but then it's not like we fought it. <laughs> it's not like we just, the older we got, the more we resisted. No, it's the more we embrace, the more we, we take on the very character and life of Adam. And then thirdly, you know, are we also willing to cry unfair at Jesus, <laughs> you know, being our representative? Uh, at Jesus and his righteousness being imputed to us. I don't think any of us are willing to go, okay, that's so, I just, I won't take that. That's unfair. Um, now, there are some who might, because they're insulted. There is that danger of, okay, that's actually offensive to me, that you would say, I need his righteousness to be imputed to me because I don't have any of my own. So no, you keep it. Paul's even going to say to the Romans about his fellow Jews that, yeah, they're, they're aiming for a righteousness, but they're not seeking the righteousness of God, but their own, to establish a righteousness of their own. But yet when the Spirit opens our eyes to see, yet none of us cry, no, keep it. This is unfair. And we say, oh, praise God. To him be the glory that he would count righteousness to me. Um, so the guilt under which we're born is well-deserved because Adam is our natural and federal head and because we're sinners. <laughs> so both of those are, are true. He is our natural and federal head and we are sinners. And therefore the guilt that is inherited um, is deserved. If you want another, we won't go into it now, but another interesting illustration of this is in 1 Samuel 21. And it's the story of the famine that's going to come in the days of David that resulted from sin committed by King Saul. Is it 2 Samuel? Okay, thank you. 2 Samuel 21. That Saul violated a covenant between Israel and the Gibeonites. If you remember the story of the Gibeonites who deceived Joshua when Joshua and the armies were coming into Israel and they pretended to be from a far, far land so that Joshua would make a covenant with them rather than destroy them. And then they only learned later after making a covenant with them, oh, they're actually from within the land but they've made a covenant with them. And since the Gibeonites deceived them, does God say, oh, don't worry, Joshua, you can wipe them out? Or he say, no, the covenant trumps their deceit of you. <laughs> and so it doesn't matter that they deceived you. You made a covenant in my name, and so you will not wipe them out. You will, they will dwell in the land, and they will be here, and they're going to serve as servants, but yet they're not going to annihilate them. Well, years later, for reasons we don't understand, but probably Saul didn't like this so much, these Gibeonites that are there. And so Saul tried to wipe them out and killed a bunch of people. And so we learn in 2 Samuel 21 that there's this famine that enters the land. And when David asks, okay, why? First, or 2 Samuel 21, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David saw the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So how many people are being affected by this famine? 
everybody's being affected by this famine. And, and is Saul even around at this point? No, is his house even in charge? No, David's a different house. But God's saying, well, no, because there's blood guilt that's, that's imputed. <laughs> that because of what Saul did, my name is still attached to that. You remember what they're going to have to do to, to remove the famine? Remember, they're going to take some descendants of Saul, and what are they going to do? It says, hang them before the Lord. And so these seven sons are going to be, these seven descendants and relatives are going to be hung. And then what's going to happen to the famine? It's going to be removed. It's this really troubling passage that most of us, we don't know what to do with. Because again, we don't see the relational connectedness in the Bible. We don't see the importance of the name of God. Because it was really about not just getting rid of a famine, but vindicating whose name? It's God's name. That you've been, you know, the enemies of the Lord are blaspheming because of you, because of what you've done. Similar with Saul's, or David's sin with Bathsheba. We're going to take the child that's born of this adultery as a statement to the whole world that, that I'm righteous, that I'm holy. And so there's something in it that we all, I think, have to wrestle with it in ourselves, in our flesh, with, okay, that's uncomfortable. And so how do I learn to believe and receive some of these doctrines when they're really hard to digest? Because God really is that righteous, that holy, that... Yes, Rachel. Yeah, ignorance isn't safe. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. And though the truth is hard to receive, it's, like you said, when you're dealing with cancer, you want the truth because you want the remedy. You, you want to know what the danger is and what's, what's the answer. Because even some of what, even this, this story in Second Samuel doesn't mean is, okay, so when somebody commits these kinds of sins, that we get to come back later and wipe out descendants, you know, as if it's, you know, just some kind of war among clans. Because God was very specific in how he gave instructions. Very specific of why. But more than anything, we just see those moments where God very, gives very specific, interesting counsel and direction that's very hard to digest. Um, yeah, Eric. Yeah, I mean, I, so, so I don't think it necessarily means that unless God were to send a prophet and say, all right, here's, here's what it means. 
And so I, I said to say that as a general, yeah, I don't think we were the ones that can necessarily make that decision about, okay, if, you, if Ted Bundy is your great uncle, what now do you have to do? But I also don't want to rule out there aren't times right. <laughs> where, where either God may specifically in his word say, okay, there, there is some reparations that need to happen, even among descendants, or there, there is real reconciliation that needs to happen, even among descendants. And again, the point isn't just to make things fair. What's the point? Whose name? Yeah, this is about vindicating God's name. So especially when, and I think that was the thing about the Gibeonite sin, is there was a covenant that God's name was attached to that was specifically violated by God's people, not by the Gibeonites, by, by God's people, that now to the whole world made a statement about who God is that I think God now says, okay, we're going to make a specific statement about who I am. And so there are times where we see that. And so certainly with David and Bathsheba, we're going to see that with a child, where the idea of, oh, does God, is he just cruel? What's he taking the life of this baby for? Um, but he explains it super clearly. And so, so there's a part of it, yeah, we can't figure out. But there are those circumstances where, to me, I think the point we want to get to here is for us to not to sit under just this uncomfortable reality that, of inherited guilt um, and to not try to get out of that. That there isn't a sense of responsibility that, that is passed downward um, and that we need to do even a better job of, okay, our sin, <laughs> you know, our guilt before God, our need for a savior and a redeemer and to not, you know, because I go back to Isaiah 6 a lot where, where Isaiah is called in a vision or in person, whatever it is, in the presence of God. And he's like, woe is me, I'm undone. He says, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. And so just how, I, you think about for Isaiah, do you think he was a, a bit more righteous than a lot of the people? Do you think he was more faithful to God in the land than a lot of the people? Do you think, I mean, you look at his life, you go, okay, this is a dude, he's served the Lord. Like, he's a prophet. He's compared to everybody else. But he doesn't say any of that. <laughs> like, he's, he doesn't get there, see God, and go, whew, I'm so glad I'm better than everybody else. No, what he's aware of is he's, a, he's part of the group. Like, there's God in heaven and we're on earth. So let your words be few. <laughs> you know, and... And there's a sense of this is us. This is, this is our trouble. But. Which leads to this idea of inherited pollution. So not just inherited guilt, but even inherited pollution. Which is where we tend to get this idea of total depravity from and total inability. So part of inherited pollution is depravity and part of it is inability. Um, yeah, that when we say that mankind is totally depraved, we mean to say that he's born with the absence of righteousness and with the presence of an evil disposition. That's what we mean. Pollution. Or we could say corruption. We inherit a sinful nature in everything a sinful nature entails. And this is where I think I shared earlier about R.C. Sproul, where he likes uh, radical corruption, perhaps, is a better word than total where he says it's at the root, it's at the core. And scripture does more than just speak of the total depravity of men's souls, it actually shows us. So if we don't believe in the phrase or the word or just, from, just read the story of scripture, and what do we see? How well do humans do? 
in the story. How total, how comprehensive, how deep is our rebellion, is our disposition to evil. Yeah, Genesis 8, 21, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, this is Noah's sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Oh, what a kindness that is. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Genesis 6 is going to say, every intention of his heart is on evil always. And that's this idea of it's not just an inherited guilt, but a pollution. Something in us that is repelled by God's righteousness and drawn to unrighteousness. This is, I think, important where we should say what total depravity does not mean, which gets a little bit to Karen's question. It does not mean that a person's never capable of a good act. That's not what it means. Does not mean that every person is as bad as he or she could be. In other words, it's not utter depravity. Just, just radical, root, comprehensive. You know, back to the illustration of the ink and the water. It doesn't mean there's no water in it. It just means the ink is touching everything. Doesn't mean every person is as evil as the next person. It doesn't mean that. Um, There really are gradations of evil. There are some that are more wicked than others. We see that in the Bible, right? That God will say things like certain worthless fellows. This, and is not using that phrase to apply to everybody, but to a particular group that's there. Does not mean the image of God is exterminated from people. Doesn't mean there's no longer any image of God that we bear. Um, Does not mean that people can't think logically or coherently about anything. So it doesn't mean that, you know, we talked last week about the noetic effects of sin, that everything's a little distorted, a little fuzzy. We're not seeing and interpreting reality as clearly as we should. But that doesn't mean people can't think logically. It doesn't mean that we can't think coherently about some things. It just means that as a whole, everything's a little distorted. Because we see that too. Can you lose reason? Yeah, just if, if either it's you or you're in a room with someone who has lost capacity to reason. If you're sitting with Nebuchadnezzar as he's eating grass because he thinks he's a cow, you realize, okay, there's still real reason that exists among some human beings because you can see there, there is a spectrum of in-touchness with reality. And so that even lends the idea to the fact that, okay, whatever this total depravity is, it doesn't mean that all capacity for logic's removed, all capacity for region. Well, what does it mean? Well, it means that by nature, every person is morally corrupt, incapable of the perfect good necessary to commend themselves to God. That every person is morally corrupt. And secondly, it means that from birth, every person's enslaved to sin. That's another thing that this means. That nobody's born free of sin, but enslaved to sin. Unable to free themselves without God's grace. Separated from God. In the dark. Thirdly, every person's dead in their trespasses and sins. Which means we're completely unresponsive to God and His Word until the Spirit gives life and and puts a new heart in us. It's like if we were to be driving on the road and we look over and there's a corpse, somebody who's there and they've been dead for two days. Do any of us walk over and go, hey, get up, I'll give you a ride home? Why not? They're dead. Are they responsive to your voice? Are they able to stand up? 
Well, that's how the Bible portrays the gospel being spread and spoken to those who aren't regenerate by the Spirit of God. Is we're dead to God. We're dead to His voice. We're dead to His righteousness. And so we're there. And until the Spirit comes over and gives us life, that's why the resurrection of Jesus, again, is a great picture. That's why He's going to raise the, the, widow, the widow of Nain's son. He's going to raise Lazarus. He's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life because He's showing us that's, this is actually what you need. This is how bad it is. It's not just blindness, it's not just deafness, it's deadness. Like, so the Spirit has to do with us what Jesus does with Lazarus of come forth, awake. Um, every person is naturally attracted to sin and naturally repulsed by the grace of God. That's another thing it means. That again, we're, we're naturally gravitate toward selfishness. Naturally gravitate toward pride. Naturally gravitate away from self-sacrifice. Away from humility. And then at a very basic level, everything we think and feel and do is tainted by selfish motivations. <clears throat> That's another thing it means. That selfish motivation sort of touches everything we do. And it means that before God, none stand righteous on their own. That's another thing that total depravity means, that corruption means. Um, an illustration, I, I think modern day wheat in our country is a great illustration of this. That How many of you have, you, know, you don't have to put up your hands, but just the idea of gluten intolerance? It's really modern-day weed intolerance. And, and in some ways, there's fear of really naming kind of what it is. It's because the wheat we grow today isn't wheat anymore. It's been so genetically modified over the years because at, literally at a genetic level, the, meat, or the, the wheat's been modified to resist drought, to resist insects. So all these things have been inserted into the, it's been reconstructed as a molecular biological hybrid so that it, if you were to actually look at it and compare it to wheat 120 years ago, they're two different things. Which is why now you put this new product in your body and what do some people's bodies do? It, it rejects it. Why does it reject it? It's not natural. Like this thing that I'm actually putting in my body, my body's not recognizing it as organic. <laughs> it's something that's different. And so what that means, and now there's a lot of people that aren't that are able to take it in. Now, we don't realize that the nutritional value that we're taking in is so minimal because every molecule in that wheat is tainted by, at a very genetic level, at a very molecular level. And so that's why there's different movements of groups in America that are even growing wheat as it was 100 years ago, 120 years ago. And it's only five times more expensive as, you know, the, the fake stuff. But to me, that's a great illustration of, okay, depravity. That when something gets in at a very genetic level, it looks like wheat. It sort of tastes like wheat. It tastes on the texture of wheat. It's filling, the way wheat's filling. But you don't realize how tainted it is in, in the very molecules that you're taking in. It's, it's so hard to see. And that's more how original corruption works. We still look human. We still talk like humans. We can still do some good things and be productive and work at a job and raise family. All these. But we don't realize, okay, at a very genetic level, at a very basic level, everything's a little tainted. Um, which then leads to total inability. That not only are we depraved, but we're unable to change this about ourselves. And I could list all the passages that talk about this. Here's just a couple. 
Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Just that phrase, our righteous deeds, polluted garment. In other words, the best things we do, polluted. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Jeremiah 13, can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good, who are accustomed to do evil. Just that idea, can I change the color of my skin? And we're not talking about tanning here. We're talking about, okay, can I actually change that? Can I change things that God has said, this is what you are? And so he says, so if I'm disposed to evil, how can I just change my condition to good? The point is, okay, it's rhetorical, you can't. You know, Romans 7, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So again, we could go through dozens of passages on just the inability to reconcile ourselves to God, the inability to change our condition, the inability to remove our sins from us. Which I think all just primes us for the glory of the gospel. And so we're going to close back in Romans 5 where we began. I think when we really swallow and embrace painfully these kinds of truths, now we're primed and ready to really hear, believe, and rejoice in the gospel. So that, yeah, Romans 5, verse 15, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So just this pollution and guilt abounded to us in Adam. How much more has grace and mercy abounded to us in Christ. Verse 16, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Not condemnation, but justification. You can actually be declared righteous before God because you're in Christ. And all His righteousness is imputed to you. Verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And those all men are the all men and women who actually turn from their sin and believe in Christ. They're declared righteous. Verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why would we want to minimize sin? When seeing sin for what it is is what makes grace look so abundant as it is abundant. Verse 21, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see just as, okay, Adam was our federal head, and all his sin and corruption and pollution and guilt was imputed to us. So now in Christ, he's our federal head. He represents us in all his righteousness, all the forgiveness that comes in him, all the right standing before God is ours unto eternal life in Him. Final question or comment before we, or a couple before we close? Or? I was just going to say yeah, Nicole. about um, the realistic theory. Yeah. Um, if it were true, wouldn't that lead to someone promoting universal salvation? Meaning that
so the difficulty with the, with the realist theory is, is that it has more this idea of a physical descendant. And so since Jesus didn't have any physical descendants, then it, it kind of would create a worse problem, and that is that none could be saved. Because we would all have to descend from him physically to do it. Um, so I think the reasons that universal salvation comes about probably would, would, is more likely to come from a misunderstanding of the covenant theory of just the idea, well, Jesus just died for everybody. So it doesn't really matter whether or not you're put in him by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter that you're, you repent and look to Christ and are born again. He just did it for everyone. And so the thing he did at the cross paid for everybody's sin no matter what they do. Um, that's probably more likely to lead to the universal salvation thing. Um, but yeah, good question though. Yeah, so I think there's this, as we walk away, there's certainly the, okay, the hope of the gospel we're meant to talk away, okay, take away, just the, the hope of Christ and the need for Christ. But then there's also the sobering side of just, okay, I, I don't get to just distance myself, minimize sin, and, and think I'm clean because I didn't do this or this or this, but we're much more connected than we realize in how we live and how we think and how we feel uh, corporately matters. Um, but Thomas, will you pray for us? And wrap up? Amen. Thanks, Thomas. See you all later.